Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start a brand new series. We've been announcing this for the past month and a half and whatnot in the letter to 1 Corinthians. So I want you guys to open up there if you have not already done so. If you guys don't have Bibles, uh, why don't you go ahead and raise your hand and um, we'll get you some Bibles. So a couple of things before we even jump in. Um, I was... Um, um, I'm, today we're going to be doing a little bit of a test pilot type of a thing where I actually have an app on my phone that's going to allow me to be able to have full control. So watch this. Look at that. I did that. And I'll even show you just in case you're like, no, it's not true. Look at that. I did that. I have power, like a lot of power. I not only have this app, but I have the mic. So I'm very, very feeling very powerful right now. Anyways, uh, I promise to use my power with uh, responsibility. But that being said, it's, I also kind of feel like um, I'm, um, what do you call it, uh, when you're getting your driver's license, you have the other guy, he actually has the brake, right? The other person in the actual dri- uh, passenger seat. Um, so just in case I start drifting off the road and I get kind of confused, these guys in the back who are amazing, think, let's give these guys a round of applause. These guys are awesome. Um, they normally go completely unnoticed unless something glitches, right? Um, so we want to make sure that we notice them for just what they do. So um, anyway, so that, that being said, we're going to jump into the brand new series in a letter called Corinthians. I'm going to pray real quick, and then uh, we'll get to work trying to understand a little bit about why this particular letter and how this kind of plays into our particular uh, life today. And, and ultimately, uh, my hope is that as we go through this letter, which will be in here for a good part of the year plus, is uh, to really find Jesus and to really discover how God is calling us to actually live uh, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. I'm going to call it a book periodically, which technically it's not a book. So if I do call it a book, you can rebuke me. Um, it's more of a letter. So typically when we think of a book, we think of like, you know, book. Um, this, this was not a book. This was someone's mail. And we have this really unique opportunity of reading someone else's mail, of kind of eavesdropping in on a dialogue that's going back and forth between a guy named Paul, which we'll learn about in just a moment, and a community of people that are following Jesus in a really, really messed up city called Corinth, which makes them a really, really messed up community of people, um, not too dissimilar like, like us. Well, we're really just trying to find our way. We're trying to make sense of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Um, we're trying to make sense of what it looks like to live with our lives being reoriented according to the kingdom of heaven and not according to San Luis Obispo, not according to the cultural currents that are, that are all around us, constantly influencing us. Um, you know, they've said about Israel, like, you can take the Jewish people out of Egypt, but it takes a lifetime to take Egypt out of the Jewish people, which is exactly what happened with them. And the same is true for you and I. You may be a brand new follower of Jesus. You may be someone that's like 20 years, you know, a couple decades on your walk with Jesus, and yet you are still uh, dealing with worldliness. Uh, in other words, world-likeness. Likenesses in you that represent more of the culture at large around you as opposed to Jesus. And uh, so this is a book. It's very practical. It's literally the working out of the theological concepts and constructs of who Jesus is. In other words, if I can put it another way, if the main declaration in the New Testament is that Jesus is king, right? Uh, wink, wink, Anya. But if Jesus truly is king, if that's really the point, right? Um, the bigger question is, what does it look like then to actually live it out? What does it look like then on the ground, on the floor level, to actually live as if Jesus truly is king? What does it really mean? For you to think about how you spend your money, how you think about your sexuality, what about your identity, what about conflict, you know, those people that you radically dislike or do not have any personal relationship with, or you just want to take the court or sue or uh, mistreat or be rude or rebellious towards, how do you treat other people? Like, the, the book of Corinthians, there, I just did it, the letter of Corinthians is, is, is not just simply a corrected, though it is, but it's ultimately a reframing. The aim of the letter of 1 Corinthians is is about to reframe, reconstruct how we think about what it means to live as if Jesus truly is king. And so, again, we'll get into this and hope it'll make a lot of sense as we begin to unpack it. I want to pray real quick. We've got a lot of work to do before we uh, finish up here this morning. So let me pray. We'll jump in. Father, right now we just come to you and we just lay our hearts uh, before you. God, we just confess that we need you as our, not only our king, but the one who empowers us to live as if you're king. 
God, we can have a, an idea in our mind and a hope that you will one day renew all things. But God, right now in this moment, in our lives, in the midst of our chaos, God, we want to know what it looks like for us to live now, to live now as if Jesus is king. So we, we ask you, Father, as we embark upon this whole new journey, this adventure, that you would open our hearts to learn, to grow, to be humble, to allow our hearts and our theological constructs and our uh, narratives that we have about you to be reshaped and maybe in some ways rebuked and corrected and restored. Um, so we just commit this morning as well as the next uh, several months into your hands and just pray that you do good things in our lives as individuals, but also in the life of our church family um, on a larger, broader level. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we go. I'm going to try to do this here. Here we go. Uh, okay, I'm going to first of all just kind of show you a map because that's what we do sometimes. It's kind of nerdy. I get it, but this is church, and so we get to do this. So I'm going to show you a little map. So in case you are trying to figure out where is Corinth, I thought it would be kind of a good place to kind of locate where exactly Corinth is. So uh, what this is, you see Greece. Over there where it says Palermo in the upper right-hand corner, or left-hand corner where you guys are looking at, that's the boot of, um, of Italy. So just in case you're trying to wonder where all this is at. So um, Athens, Greece, um, down here you see Benghazi at the very, very bottom, which is you know, northern Africa, and all the way off over to here, which you can't see, which is, would be where Israel is at. And so again, this is kind of the construct of uh, the, the map. So if you were to zoom in on the big square right there where you can see that, that's, that's Corinth. Corinth was a, was a narrow um, body of land called an isthmus. Um, so say that five times without a lisp, and um, uh, good luck. But the, the point of the matter is this is, this is what it was. Um, back in the ancient day, there was no canal. Today, there's an actual canal there. I'll show you some photos of that in just a second. Um, but there was not a canal there. And so it, it, this was a really important city and a strategic city uh, for the ancient world because um, if they did not have that canal there, so if you were to go to Athens and then sail all around the entire Cape, I think it's called the Cape of Malaya or something to that effect, in order to get all the way to the other side, it, first of all, it was really dangerous too. It cost a lot of money. And so being able to go to Corinth was a very unique and effective way for people to save a lot of money. Uh, but what that did is it kind of created this uh, element with regard to Corinth as a whole. So uh, next slide, look at that. Oh, I had power. It did it. So I'll give you a couple little bullet points about this. So this is the ancient city of Corinth. Uh, you can see at the bottom it had a, um, oh, my gosh, a theater. Is that, okay, those of you that maybe know this, there's a difference between a theater and an amphitheater. Is that an amphitheater? Does anybody know for sure? Okay, so is it an amphitheater? Because amphi, amphi means like half, is that correct? I don't know. Any, I have no idea. Just, just act like I know what I'm talking about, and there you go. So anyways, a theater, amphitheater, whatever it was, um, that tells us a lot about the city. So when you found ancient cities that actually had like amphitheaters in it, it tells you that it had a robust um, construction of the arts. So went that they had, you know, it's like a, a major mecca, a major hub for, for the arts, like um, acting and plays and actors and celebrities and so on and so forth. Um, you have all these columns. So you see, again, some of the photos on the bottom. Um, you can see kind of the, that's the, the little canal that they dug out. Imagine uh, the massive feat that that took to actually dig that up. But back in the day, um, they didn't have that canal. So what they would actually do is if you had a light ship, you would uh, come into the harbor, and they would actually put it out in rollers and walk it uh, four miles across the land. Imagine that. Like, it's gnarly to think that that's what they used to do back in the day. Um, so uh, city of Corinth was, um, I'll come back to the very top one, but if you think of it in this context, it was a Roman colony, uh, port city uh, that was filled with entrepreneurs, wealthy people, celebrities, um, athletes, because it was also home to what was called the uh, Isthmian, Isthmian Games, which was kind of like the Olympics, but they had these every two years. The Olympic Games were every four years. Uh, these games, so you'd imagine the city was, was hustling with uh, very you know, young, strapping, fit, healthy um, uh, athletes. Um, it was also highly educated. So this was an educational hub as well. So um, as a result of that, having a lot of people that are rich, good-looking, wealthy, healthy, strong, fit, educated, this also attracted a lot of uh, sex workers. Because especially if you are a uh, sailor, 
and you're going to be docking over a certain period of time um, over the winter, let's say, for example. Obviously, uh, you got a, you know, a crew of you know, 100 some odd sailors that are you know, trying to figure out something to do. So this attracted a lot of sex workers uh, and slaves, conmen, deviants, uh, criminals, so on and so forth. And this ultimately resulted in a high level of venereal diseases. And this is all, again, based upon uh, history and whatnot. But venereal disease was high. Unwanted pregnancies, as you can imagine, which led to a high population of orphan, orphan children, which ultimately substance abuse, um, uh, crime, debt, anxiety, et cetera, and so on and so forth. Um, but the phrase that was used back in the ancient day was to Corinthianize. In other words, any time, for example, in a play, um, if you had a Corinthian that was portrayed, they were always uh, portrayed as, as a drunk because this was sort of the, uh, the reputation that this city of Corinth had, um, had attracted. Um, if, if you want to think about this context uh, or this city in a futuristic context, here's what comes to my mind. Um, next slide. Oh, sorry. Here we go. I have the power. <laughs> I keep forgetting. I got to remind myself. Uh, I got the power. Uh, so this is what it reminds me of. Uh, most nicely, right? So, uh, you know, wink, wink to um, uh, Star Wars there. So, uh, Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi said this, the wretched hive of scum and villainy. And I think, uh, Villa, th this, is, this was the ancient city of, of Corinth, right, in, in the future. Um, so imagine, like, that's what was happening here. And this is what's amazing about the city of Corinth, was in the heart of this city, um, God birthed a brand new work. The, the Holy Spirit was moving in the midst of this. So that's what's absolutely mind-blowing about the city. If you want a, sort of a modern-day equivalent, it'd be kind of like, like the port city of uh, San Francisco, which still, you know, for the most part, to some degree uses its ports, which has, it's very multicultural, multi-ethnic. You have all sorts of hustle and bustle going on. Um, that was the ancient city of, uh, and as a result of that, obviously, a high degree of crime and other forms of substance abuse and anxiety and so on and so forth. Everything that goes along with an ancient city, uh, we also see in kind of modern times as well and apparently in the future. So the point that I'd make is that as we begin to jump into this, this book of Corinthians, I think there's a lot of important concepts that we can learn and grow from. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just jump right into the text. We're going to begin just reading uh, verses 1 through 3. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to jump right into the text. We'll read, and then we'll begin to uh, make some observations as we uh, let the Holy Spirit speak to us and show us what God wants to show us. So let's begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 reads, Paul. Stop. <laughs> We're stopping right now. I want to focus right now. Right now, I just want to focus on, on Paul. Because I, I realize in our church gathering, we've got people that maybe you were raised in a Christian home, so you know a little bit about who Paul is. So this is like, you know, you're picking up the story with already this back knowledge, this backstory of who Paul is. For others of you, you're like, I've heard bits and pieces about who Paul is, but you have some sort of vague notion or, or it's uh, a little bit ambiguous as to who he is. For others of you, you really don't even know who Paul is. So I don't want to assume where you are in terms of what you even think about Paul. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to just take a little bit of a diversion that I think will play really healthily into the overall you know, reading of this passage um, to really understand why this story um, is so phenomenal, especially with this guy by the name of Paul. So let's jump in and begin to read a little bit about who Paul is. Um, and I'm going to pick up his story in Acts chapter 7. Um, you'll see a couple of these images. This is like the oldest depiction of Paul the Apostle, um, somewhere around 400, maybe 350 um, AD. Um, so obviously Paul made it on some ancient art. Um, but I want to begin to really understand a little bit about who Paul is, just in case uh, you don't know who Paul is, um, or if, like I said, you already know to some degree who Paul is. Um, this is a great refresher of just how God changes and radically transforms people's lives. The reason why this, I think, is so important is because it causes us to realize, in, even in modern times, there are maybe people that are nothing but thorns in your side, people that you despise, people that you look at and you think there's no way they will ever come to Jesus. There's no way they will ever be redeemed. Um, this is one of those stories that reminds us, never lose hope. Never lose hope in God's power to break through the malaise, the darkness, uh, the, the, the brokenness, the sinfulness. Uh, of, of other people's lives, that God always can do whatever God chooses that God will do. So I'm going to begin by reading uh, the story, a little bit of a biography about who Paul the Apostle is. So I'm going to begin Acts chapter 7, verses 57 through 60, and we'll just kind of jump through a handful of other passages. So uh, follow along. It says this, that these religious leaders, they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. So a little bit of a backstory. 
the Jesus movement, we would call the church, is beginning to grow. If you're familiar with the stories of Jesus, uh, most of us, I think, to some degree, have some vague, at least uh, more even robust knowledge of who Jesus is. Jesus comes, lives, dies, rises again, and that begins this brand new movement that we call either the way or disciples of Jesus or Christianity, choose your name. But this movement begins to grow. It begins in the city of Jerusalem, and it begins to kind of telescope outward from there. Um, but as it begins to grow, there's conflict that's arising. The conflict, for the most part, is between this new sect of Jesus followers and the old sect of religious leaders, like uh, scribes or Pharisees or religious leaders that were basically part of a tribalistic system known within Judaism. And so these religious leaders were standing in opposition to this Jesus movement. One of the Jesus movement people is a guy by the name of Stephen, and that's what we read about here. He was just an, or a, a leader in the early church, not really kind of a, a high-level leader. He was just a guy that kind of was serving Jesus, waiting on the poor, uh, serving others at a church gathering, just like many of you guys are already doing. But at some point, God gives him an opportunity to preach the gospel to a bunch of religious folk. Well, that ends up not going really well for him because on his very first sermon, which also happens to be his last, he ends up getting stoned to death, not in the, like, any other way, but other than having people grab stones and kill him. So this is what ends up happening to this guy by the name of Stephen. So we're told that the religious leaders, they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him because they did not like what they, he was saying. And it says, and then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments um, at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. So this is the very first time we're introduced to this guy that we come to know as Paul the Apostle. He was originally Saul, Saul of Tarsus. This would have been his Greek name, uh, Paul. Uh, I'm sorry, this would have been his uh, Jewish name, Hebrew name. Um, Paul would have been his Greco-Roman name. Um, oftentimes, especially in more larger cities, you would have kind of a, uh, a Jewish name in which you were identified with if you were Jewish or religious. Um, and then more of a kind of a street name, which was kind of more of like, a, like, like in Paul's case, Paul. So this is the first time we're introduced to the guy named Saul or Paul. So next slide. Got power. Got to keep reminding myself that. Acts chapter 8, as the story continues, we see in Saul approved of his execution. So again, we're reminded of what was going on in this guy by the name of Saul slash Paul, is that here he is watching and approving. So whoever he was, he obviously was somebody that was of such importance that these young religious leaders were coming and taking the actual garments that they stripped off of this young guy by the name of Stephen, who was just literally mob attacked and then stoned, and they take these garments and they lay them at Paul's feet, and Paul's kind of nodding with approval, like, good job, guys. This is exactly what we had hoped for. So, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging uh, the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women, and he committed them to prison. So what we see again so far is that as Saul was expanding his influence, everywhere he went, he was literally just terrorizing uh, human beings that were calling upon the name of Jesus. Uh, the words that were basically used there in the Greek is this, gives this indication of, of a terrorist. Paul is like this ravaging uh, wolf that's just devouring his, uh, the carcass of a dead animal, just terrorizing, destroying, hunting people down. This was pre-conversion, pre-transformation, uh, Paul the Apostle. In Acts chapter 9, as the story continues, verses 1 through 6, it says, Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone round about him. As the story continues, it says, And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he said to him, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And this is uh, an image. I don't know how well you can actually see it because it's already painted in dark colors. It's a Caravaggio. It's one of my favorite paintings of uh, Paul the Apostle. It's known as Paul's conversion, which I wouldn't necessarily personally call it a conversion per se, where Paul wasn't swapping religions. He was discovering Jesus. So however you want to describe that, I don't really care. But whatever happened to Paul, Saul, Paul, he literally was transformed. In other words, when you meet Jesus, 
your whole world changes. And if you have not been radically changed, it's possible all you've had is the brush up against a religion or an ancient historical figure that's kind of like, that's sage-like or it's got good advice or it's kind of like a really good life coach. But a life coach does not radically change your life. Jesus does. And that's what happens to Saul, uh, Paul, uh, uh, sorry, Saul of Tarsus, ultimately then who would become Paul. Um, this image kind of shows us as he's knocked off his horse. So the next slide as we continue to go on. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Uh, he, the, the Lord had said to him in a vision, Ananias, rise and go to a street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So you'd imagine this guy, Ananias, receives this word directly from God. And it's like, hey, go find this guy named Saul of Tarsus. Um, something radically has happened to him. Now, as you imagine, Ananias is full of suspicion. So I love this. Uh, this is Ananias' way of basically saying, but, but Lord, are you, are you sure? Are you sure, Jesus, that this is really what's going on? And he says, but Ananias answers, the Lord, I've heard many, uh, for many about him, about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and that he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. And the Lord then said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And so Ananias is instructed, just go, I'm going to be with you, and he is a chosen vessel of mine. Um, what's interesting about this is that we're beginning to get a little bit of understanding. Now, what you need to understand first and foremost is the book of Acts ultimately is not a story about Paul. It's a story about Jesus. It's a story about how Jesus is going forth into the entire world to begin to reshape a whole new community according to himself, by which he is king, in which his kingdom, uh, his domain, uh, begins to be lived out within and through this new community of people. And so part of that because Paul was a remarkable figure or character within the Jesus story who has this radical transformation. Um, we're told a little bit about uh, these details about his coming to Jesus and then ultimately what he was about to do. And this is where we learn a little bit about the mission that this guy Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul, uh, is called and commissioned to do. It says, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine. So what did God choose Paul to do? Well, three things, if you uh, paid attention to the text. He says, number one, uh, he's to carry my name uh, before Gentiles and kings and ultimately the children of Israel. Um, in other words, three types of people groups. So just pause and think about this. Um, we'll start with Israel. That, that's a no-brainer. Paul already, Saul of Tarsus, was already um, a Jew. He was already Jewish. Um, he was trained under what we're told a guy by the name of Gamaliel, which would have been kind of the Stephen Hawking of the ancient Jewish world, right? He was a super genius sage-like, Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi human being, right? He knew a lot about God and Yahweh. He was trained directly under this guy named Gamaliel. Then Saul of Tarsus was part of the early construct of Judaism of the first century there. And so what we see with regard to that is for him to go to Jewish people is, is kind of a no-brain type of a situation. But he's also to go before kings. Uh, and we see this is massive. Like God is literally going to give this guy Saul of Tarsus these unique opportunities to stand before the, the leaders, the influencers, the movers and shakers of his day to begin to communicate the gospel to him. That's, that's kind of an amazing thing. Now, pause and think about that. Most of us will never be given that opportunity, right? How do you get that opportunity, right? You either become very loud and verbose, you start a YouTube channel, you become Instagram famous, whatever the point of the matter is, is that for the most part, those are all fabricated types of ways. For, for Saul of Tarsus, this was a call. God had called him and was going to begin to open these doors for him to begin to do that. And then finally, we're told that he is to go before Gentiles. So again, I'm kind of moving in reverse order. Ultimately, Gentiles. So what is a Gentile? So Gentile is anybody who is not Jewish. So again, um, back in the ancient world, um, especially if you're Jewish like Paul, you would basically see the world in two main categories. One, that would be Jewish people, those that are faithful to Yahweh and to the Torah, his word. Um, and those that were not, those that were like outsiders, they would have been viewed as Gentiles, people that, that were not part of the covenant relationship with Yahweh God. And uh, if you were a good Jew, uh, you would not have a whole lot of interactions with those that are far from God. So if you're looking for a good analog to think about this in a modern context, think about a very, very deeply committed Muslim. 
uh, that would, for the most part, look at anybody who is a non-Muslim and describe them as an infidel. That was exactly the mindset of, no doubt, Paul the Apostle or Saul of Tarsus, right? So part of Paul's transformation would be to learn to begin to see other human beings that bear the image of God that are not part of his like little small world of Judaism as not being infidels, but even more than not just simply being infidels, as being people whom God loves and God welcomes into this big, vast world that Jesus is reshaping and reframing. So Paul's mission becomes very clear from the very beginning. So uh, next, as we go on, uh, skip forward to Acts chapter 13. This is a really important, pivotal moment in the life of the early church. Um, we see that now there were in the church of Antioch, these prophets, teachers, Barnabas, uh, prophets and teachers, uh, Barnabas and Simeon, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Menian, uh, who was a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. Again, that's just one of those phrases or sentences that we can oftentimes glance over. Um, that Who is this guy? Well, this guy was literally lifelong friend of people that were really, really high up in the entire political system. That was who Herod the Tetrarch was. And it says, and Saul. So Saul was part of this like prayer group, this prayer meeting, this worship time. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit then said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I called them. After they were fasting and praying, they laid hands on him, and they sent them off. And being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they set sail. This is a really important pivot within the story of the life of the early church. Because at this moment, um, we've already seen the transformation of this guy named Saul of Tarsus, who is going out killing, killing followers of Jesus. Uh, trying to destroy apostles. Now, this guy, Saul of Tarsus, becomes one of them. And not just becomes one of them, becomes one of the main promoters of this early movement we call Christianity today. And it all began to become this sort of international movement at this prayer meeting. So just to underscore the importance of God meeting people in moments of prayer, um, if if I can put it this way, we would not be here today had it not been for this, this prayer meeting. This prayer meeting literally opened the door for the gospel to go beyond the cities that were most locally recognized, with, which would have been like Jerusalem or Antioch, a little bit to the north. But from that particular prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit begins to speak. Um, they gave space, gave word, gave opportunity for God to move and work in their lives. And as God began to move and work in their lives, uh, the Holy Spirit then says, go leave this city, go someplace else where the gospel has not been heard and begin to proclaim the name of Jesus. And that's exactly what they do. And as that begins to happen, the gospel, the work of Jesus, uh, the, the movement of Jesus begins to spill over into Europe, which then, you know, you have the rest of the history from that particular point forward. So I'm going to jump forward now to the book of Acts chapter 18. Again, uh, how are you guys doing? You guys, you guys doing all right? Both of you? Good job. Awesome. Um, so Acts chapter 18, uh, just a little bit more, and we're going to be done with this absolutely, utterly boring historical background. So there you go. Um, so Acts chapter 18, this will put everything into context. Um, this is a story of Paul as he was out going around planting these churches. Um, one of the areas in which he came to was, this, was a city called Corinth. And I'm going to read the story of how Paul and what Paul had encountered when he came to the city of Corinth, because it is all backstory to what we're about to get into, begin to read. So after this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. And there he found a Jew named Aquila, who was a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So if you're familiar with your Roman history, which I wouldn't expect anybody to be, uh, there, was a, there was a situation that happened in Rome where basically uh, he became an anti-Semite and ultimately was just like, I don't want any Jews in Rome. So he began to drive all Jewish uh, people out of Rome, and uh, it just so happened to be, just so happened to be that Aquila and Priscilla were Jewish people who come to meet Jesus, who were living in Rome, who were forced to leave. They were literally immigrants who were forced to leave Rome, and now we're living, they ended up in this seaport city of, of Corinth, right, most isolated. So here they are. They come in contact with Paul, and we're told that, um, and it says, and they went to go see him. And because they were of the same trade, uh, he stayed with them, and they worked, and they were tent makers. Uh, And then he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So this was kind of a common uh, habit of Paul every time he would go to a new city. One of the very first things that he would do is that he would go to a synagogue, because again, remember, by training, Paul was trained as a rabbi, which was basically an old, 
you know, version of a priest. So he would go into these ancient Jewish synagogues and he began to reason with them, talk with them about Jesus, how that Jesus actually is the king. He is the long-awaited fulfillment of the promises and the prophecies of God to make all things new. Now, sometimes Paul's message, which was the message of the gospel, was received. People were like, this is awesome. We want to know more about it. Can you come back next week? And Paul would come back next week. And then and a little community of Jesus people would begin to be formed. And then there are other occasions that we're going to read about where Paul's message was not received. The power brokers that were in charge, the religious people for the most part, uh, they did not like what Paul was up to. And this is kind of an interesting thing because religious people, even still to this day for the most part, can be some of the worst, most aggressive and in opposition forms of people from the word of God. Now, I would even add, not only do we have in our modern day culture, not only religious people, we also have sort of secular religious people. And what I mean by that, secular fundamentalists, uh, people that are just zero tolerance. And this is exactly what Paul had run into, that this zero tolerance policy about anything beyond what we're familiar with and understanding uh, is viewed with suspicion and ultimately to be rejected. And that's exactly what happens with Paul in this particular story. And then Paul, we're told in a story that Silas and Timothy, these were two kind of uh, young, young Padawans. I don't know why I have all these Star Wars analogies today, but uh, young Padawans of Paul the Apostle. Silas and Timothy, they arrive in Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word, uh, so preaching the gospel uh, and testifying to the Jews that, that Christ, the Christ was Jesus, or the king was Jesus. And verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Now, this, this would have been viewed as, as kind of um, um, offensive if, if you were Jewish to have somebody. Imagine if, you know, I come to church and I preach my message and you're like, this stinks. It's a horrible message. And I take my shirt off and like shake it out. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm going to go next door and preach to the homeless people that are hanging out in their own little homeless camp right there. I'm done with you guys. Like, you feel a sense of rejection. Like, oh, he doesn't like us anymore. But the fact of the matter is that's what's happening with Paul. Paul's like, I'm done with you guys, and I'm going next door, which is exactly what happens. This is in verse 7. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. I love this, right? Right? Here's synagogue. Paul's like, I'm done with you guys. Walking out. He walks in next door, and he's like, we're going to start a church. Anybody want to have church today? Right? Love this. This is exactly what's happening. So, again, this is, this is all backstory. Uh, and then it goes on to say, Crispus, who's a ruler of the synagogue, he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And then the Lord said to Paul one night, this is awesome. So usually when Jesus speaks or God speaks and it's recorded for us, there's, there's usually a reason for that. And if you listen to the words that are about to be spoken, uh, you can begin to read into a little bit about the, the condition, the mental condition that Paul was probably going through in which these words came upon. So it says this, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God. So what was going on? Why, why would Paul have been frightened to speak up? It became violent for him. Like, straight up violent. Now, for many of us, like, living in our modern-day world, um, we may not face the threat of someone taking out a stone or rock or gun and shooting us or killing us, but what we might find is someone posting up, you know, something like, or stating or spreading rumors, you're a bigot, you're an idiot, you're stupid, you believe in God, how foolish of you. And what happens is these become stigmas that oftentimes get affixed to us. And so what's the net result in that? The net result is we just we zipper our lips, and we're just like, I'm done. I'll go in secret. I'll be quiet. I will not pronounce or communicate or announce or speak up on behalf of God. I'll just kind of go incognito. And that's, that's the threat. And I would even suggest that's probably worth, for the most part, many who claim to follow Jesus are within that category. I, I want to encourage you with the words of Jesus, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I'm with you. No one will attack you or harm you. And now, now that, that, that truth might not apply to you. Um, it did definitely apply to at least Paul in this particular context. Because you can remember these words were directly to Paul. But the point is, as it goes on, to say, for I have many people who are in this city. Now, what's kind of cool about that is Jesus' words to Paul was that in this brand new involvement, interaction, encounter with this city, as messed up, as broken, as diseased as it actually was from a moralistic perspective, 
Um, Jesus is saying, look, I have a work that I want to do here. I will unleash my spirit. I will set people free. I will heal people's lives. I will give them salvation. I will transform everything about them just the same way that I transform you. There are many people here that have been called by me. I love this image because, look, the fact of the matter is when I first moved here, for example, um, this is one of the prayers that I had. It was like, Lord, you know, I, I know that you've called my wife and I here to plant a church. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like or how that's going to take shape or what type of form that's going to look like. I, I feel a deep sense that we're called here. There's already a couple of decent churches here in San Luis Obispo. Why plant another one? And I remember, like, God even just really clearly speaking to me. Like, I have many people in this city that I'm going to use you guys to reach. And 25 years later, we've just seen God continue to do that. Now, look, the fact of the matter is, in San Luis Obispo today, there are so many brand new churches. In fact, in fact, even in the past three years, there have been probably half a dozen brand new churches that have just launched. Brand new, from scratch, from the bottom up, and or brand new pastors coming in. So the fact of the matter is the landscape in San Luis Obispo has reshaped since I first began here. It's amazing. There's a lot of amazing, great churches in San Luis Obispo. So look, I... I at the end of the day, some of you are like, you know, might not love Calvary Hill. That's fine. There's a lot of great churches. I'm sure they would be more than happy to take grumpy people like you to, 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 to grace their gatherings. Well, I, and I'd say that just tongue-in-cheek and joking, but the point of the matter is there's a lot of great churches. Look, God is doing work here on the Central Coast. I believe that there's more that God wants to do. There's incredible stuff that God wants to do. I believe God is setting the stage for some form of renewal here on the Central Coast where people will begin to to have their hearts overwhelmed and overcome by the grace and the love of God. And, and that, that excites me because it makes me look at the overall landscape and realize maybe God's setting the stage for something really big to happen, to be transformed. I want to be part of that. I don't know about you. I don't know how you think about what God is up to in this world. Uh, again, I realize for many of us, it's just, it's just a chore to get here on a Sunday morning because we're so overcome and overwhelmed by the constant current of the culture just sucking us down like a big black hole. But the fact of the matter is God is inviting us to be part of something bigger and greater, more robust. And the point of the matter is, is that just like what Jesus says, I have many people here. So Paul stays there, and he has a very unique purpose. So i got to move on. So Acts chapter 18, as we continue to go on in this, it says, but when Gallio, who was the proconsul of Achaia, uh, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and they brought him before the tribunal. Now, it goes on to say that this, they were saying that this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So that was a big object, objection. Verse 14, it says, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Then he goes on to say, he says, but since it's a matter of questions, in other words, here's a civil leader who's just like, I don't really care about how you guys think about God or parse the concept of the Trinity or who Jesus is. I don't really care about that. I care about, you know, evil deeds being done. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, uh, President of the United States or, you know, the governor of California. Just like, I, don't, I don't really care you know, when you guys take communion at the beginning of the service or after the service, it doesn't really matter to me or how you guys baptize. It's like, I don't really care about that. Well, what I do care about is there bad stuff happening or people being abused. So that's not good. Yeah, so his, his whole point is, that, like, I refuse to be a judge over these things. Verse 16 says, and he drove them from the tribunal. In other words, get out of my sight, verse 17, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him. And after this, Paul stayed there many days. So we'll come back to this guy Sosthenes in a, in a moment, but whoever he is, he's introduced in the story, and he's publicly uh, beaten. Um, some uh, oral tradition is that he's beaten to the point of almost death, somehow survives. Uh, he's part of this mob rule, so just imagine, imagine if you saw the horrific videos on YouTube floating around of Gaddafi being beaten to death. Imagine that's what happened to this uh, man Sosthenes, and now we enter back into the story of Corinth. So, good job. You guys survived boring history. Good job. All right. Um, First Corinthians, let's continue on in the story. I, uh, Paul, who is called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. There's that name, Sosthenes. Um, so, let's look at a couple of things. Paul points out, I was called. God called me. Uh, to be an apostle. What's an apostle? An apostle, the name literally just simply means one who is sent out. Um, the New Testament idea of apostle or apostleship carries at least three specific meanings. Here they are. Number one, 
uh, one of the 12 actual apostles. And there's all sorts of theological debate as to, like, who is the 12th apostle to replace uh, Judas Iscariot, which we all know was the betrayer. Um, but I'm not going to go down that. The second thing is we can think of an apostle, like in, an, in a lowercase a apostle. This would be someone who is uh, like a cross-cultural church planter, which we see kind of in the context of Paul. Or a third way is, uh, I think, to think of, a, again, lowercase a apostle as being someone who's like a founder of a movement. I think of someone like a John Wesley in connection with the Methodist movement or, and or Chuck Smith with regard to the Calvary Chapel movement or John Wimber with regard to the Vineyard movement. Um, or some of these other leaders that were kind of uh, just inadvertently God placed in a spot, called them to basically be the leader or founder of this really unique, broad, uh, or even like a Tim Keller who's just you know, a, a father type or leader type figure over a movement. So as we go on, we see Paul says, I'm writing this alongside with this guy by the name of Sosthenes. So again, you can read this as either Sosthenes um, had written this, and so in other words, Paul and Sosthenes are kind of collabing, on like, hey, what should, I, what should I say next? Sosthenes, Sosthenes is saying X, Y, and Z. And, or this is Sosthenes as kind of like an amanuensis, which would have meant that Paul's chilling it in his like, you know, chair, leatherback chair, smoking a cigar, maybe not. But, um, and then here's Sosthenes, he's like speaking, and Sosthenes like writing all this stuff down possibly as well, um, minus the cigar thing. But the point of the matter is, um, I think there's a reason why Paul adds this guy Sosthenes, because he adds a level of street cred to, to what Paul's about to say. Because everybody knows who Sosthenes is. You know, everybody is part of this community. They know what happened to Sosthenes. They, they either saw it or they heard stories about Sosthenes. Now, apparently, somewhere along the line, Sosthenes moves from being a leader of the synagogue to becoming a devoted follower of Jesus. So what Paul is about to communicate to the people living there in Corinth, which part of it gets a little bit harsh because there's a lot of crazy stuff that's happening. Now, again, like I said, um, all of the stuff that we talked about, the city of Corinth, it's paganism, it's idolatry, it's immorality. All that stuff did not just simply wash away the moment people are like, I love Jesus now. They, in other words, in the church, you had people coming to communion. Now, we've got like grape juice up here, but they, they had like wine back then. People were coming to communion and drinking so much wine, they were getting drunk. When was the last time that was the problem in your community group? Right? That was what was going on. And on top of that, people were getting drunk, meaning the richer people were eating the best of the food, the best, most choice wine. So all the poor people, the slaves, the scum, the people that were off-scurring of the, of the earth, that, that were not necessarily more welcome, they were bringing those divisions and distinctions into the church. So if you're just some sort of a, you know, a, a late-come person into the group, you didn't get any wine. You didn't get any food because you had to work till really, really late because you're just a slave. And Paul's writing to them saying, look, that's not okay. We're one family. We belong to each other. We belong to Jesus. And A, you guys getting drunk and you guys, uh, you know, not welcoming in those other people that, that, that had to work late because they're slaves or because, you know, different skin color or they're women or whatever the case is. It's like, it's not okay because that does not rightly reflect the good news that's been announced to us. So Paul's going to, he's going to bring the hammer down in some cases on these guys. Uh, there's another dude that's like, actually, Paul writes about it. He says, Look, it's reported to me that there's some dude sleeping with his mother-in-law. Right, this is all happening in church. So I don't know what you think about church. Some people think, I'm going to give my life to Jesus because it's a safe place. Dude, I don't, I don't know what you're thinking. This is not a safe place. It may be safer than some other places. Because I, I know a lot of y'all stories. And, and every single week as we gather, as we press in to discover what it means to really live by grace... Many of us, we bring our baggage, our brokenness, our woundedness, our sinfulness, our sinful proclivities and activities and desires into this community. And sometimes that can infect other people. And again, that's where church leaders come in. They help bring guidance and direction. But the point of the matter is, the church of Jesus is always going to be a church that's in process. Which means you will have moments of incredible sinfulness within a community. You will have moments where you know, the, the, the occasional, like, sinful proclivities and activities and actions will seep out. That shouldn't shock you. You'll have moments where people, they might not be very welcoming and warm to you because they're learning how to live in ways that are in alignment with the kingdom of God and out of alignment with the ways of this world. So it shouldn't shock you. So I, I hear it all the time. People come to church and they're like, People were nice to me, or someone, you know, said a bad word, or that lady over there smelled like she had alcohol in her breath. What the hell's wrong with him? 
Well, that's the point. Hell is on the process of being taken out of me. It's, it's part, of the, part of the whole. It's part of what it means to be transformed. Some of you are offended right now because I said hell. Look, the point of the matter is, it's like this is part of the whole process. Jesus is reshaping us to become a new people. It's dirty. It's messy. It's, it's not clean. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a birthing process. And in a birthing room, it's not clean. It may be sanitized, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of messiness that's happening within that community. That's exactly what was taking place in the church of Corinth. It was very excruciatingly messy. And yet, in the midst of it, Jesus was at work. That's, that's amazing. That's an act of grace. So I'm almost done. i got to wrap this up. Okay, we're not going to finish this song, so just musicians, just know that. I'm going to wrap this up, and then we'll, I'll pray. Okay? You guys cool with that? All right. So I want to read. It goes on to say, verse uh, 2. He says, The church of God that is in Corinth, to those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who are in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. So a few things real quick. Uh, the church of God. I don't know what you think about when you think of the concept of a church. A church is not a building. A church is a community. And this community, we're told very clearly, it's not just an assembly, but it actually belongs to God, which means that God has authorship, ownership over this community of people. He puts his name, his stamp over it. He says, they belong to me, which means you're not an orphan. You're not alone in this universe. You don't have to live alone. We also see that it's comprised of family. Paul actually uses the word to describe this guy, Sosthenes. He says, and our brother, Adelphos, it's the Greek word, our brother, Sosthenes. In other words, he, we're, we're a family. You'll find that that's one of the predominant words that gets used to describe the church. It's a family. We, we belong to one another. And then finally, we see that they have a purpose. There's a purpose that's far and beyond them. We live in a purposeless world that, for the most part, is trying desperately to find what purpose is, or what meaning is, and what we're told that the gospel tells us, that there is meaning in your life, and there's purpose that has been given to you. We're told that this is the church of God in Corinth, which tells us it's not just sort of uh, an intangible. There's no such thing as a virtual church, guys. Like, some people in our modern world, they're like, ah, I do church online. There is no such thing as church online. It does not exist. You may watch a sermon online. It's totally fine. There's no such thing as a church online. There's no such thing as a virtual church. It does not exist. It's comprised of flesh and blood. And Paul says this church that belongs to God is in the city of Corinth. The grace of God. He says that they're sanctified in Christ Jesus, which is a phrase that means set apart. God calls and sets them apart. He says called to be saints. So just listen to this phrase again. The church of God in Corinth, in Christ. So simultaneously, simultaneously, here, here we go. This is what we call dual citizenship. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a dual citizen. On the one hand, you belong to Jesus. On the other hand, you belong to San Luis Obispo or Atascadero or some part on the Central Coast. You belong someplace. Uh, bloom where you planted. Dig in. Invest roots. Become a part of that community. Give yourself to that community. And then finally, I'll wrap it up with this. Verse 3, he says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses kind of a combination of ancient uh, salutations to say hi, to greet them. Um, he uses the phrase grace, uh, charis, and then peace. They're the uh, normal common phrase of uh, Jewish people, which is shalom. From God our Father and peace uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard it said before, so I'm not making this up on my own or on the fly, but the fact of the matter is you will always see it in this order. Grace and then peace, never peace and then grace. Grace and then peace, oftentimes accompanied by mercy. This is the common greeting from Paul the Apostle, this man whose life was nothing but chaos and bringing chaos. He was a chaos creature bringing chaos in the lives of other people, but he had gone a profound transformation where peace disrupted his life. Grace and peace from our Lord. Uh, grace always comes first, and then the peace of God. Uh, you will never know peace. Which peace, by the way, is not the absence of disharmony or, or war or animosity. 
it's actually the putting back to right of everything. If think of a think of a, a, a bone being out of joint. Um, you know, an arm that's not fitting properly in the socket. All day long, you can't think of anything else other than the fact that your arm is not properly in the socket. You're in desperate pain. And you're not going to die from that, by the way, but you feel like you're going to die from that. Uh, what it means to be in shalom is to have everything in its right place. First grace disrupts our lives, and then it brings peace. Again, it's this process. It doesn't come instantaneously. It's a long journey of learning to say yes to Jesus and that his kingdom has come. That's why it finishes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, and finish on this note, is not ultimately his name. Lord is basically his title. It's what he does. Jesus is his name, Yeshua. Christ is simply what he is called to. He's the king. Christ simply can be translated as king. Jesus is king. This is why I finish with this thought. What does it look like for us, you, me, to live truly now as if Jesus is king. Jesus, thank you for this morning. We trust our hearts, our thoughts, our minds, our affections, our confusion, our chaos, our sin to you. We ask you, God, that you would just remake us and reshape us to be a people that live according to your ways. Do we entrust who we are and what we're called to to you, and we ask that you would empower us to live in a way that looks like Jesus. We ask all these things in his name, and we all said, amen. How about we all stand? I went a little over, but sorry. I want to finish with what we finish every week with, grace, mercy, peace from the triune God belongs to you. Live into that. Pray through that. Ask God, what does that look like for you to embody that throughout this week? My encouragement to you as we begin to jump into this book of Corinthians letter uh, for you to read it. It'll literally take 45 minutes if you're really fast. If you're not as fast, it might take an hour and a half to read it uh, this past week. If you want to read it in one setting, it's how long. Or just read you know, a couple chapters a day. It, won't, it really won't take you that long. But I, I, I promise you, familiarizing yourself with this letter will allow you to have even more reception, receptivity, and learning of what God has for you as we begin to make this journey through this incredible letter. So God bless you guys. Have a great week. Go now live on behalf of God's kingdom as representatives. Love you all. Bye.